Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name's Pete, and um, you know, each week in Ankeny Gospel, we have the opportunity to you know, read the, the scripture, the text of our message over you as a congregation. And as I was pondering the, the text for this morning, um, you know, the Lord, I think, just challenged me that I think this morning, let's raise the bar with the scripture reading. And not only are we going to read the scripture together, but we're going to memorize our passage together this morning. Okay? We're going to memorize this verse. Now, it's, I don't think it's going to be so daunting because the verse this morning is seven words. One verse, seven words. But I think it's one that, we, that I'd like to read over us but then have us repeat it maybe two or three times because it's, it's a simple verse. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't know what the Lord had, what's given Parker this morning for the message. And I don't want to steal his thunder. But I think it's a verse that I want to sink into our hearts as we think about this this morning. So our text this morning is 1 John 4.19. And it says this, we love because he first loved us. Okay, let's, let's do that together. How about just, you know, one, ver- one word at a time? I think we can do it together. So let's, take it, let's, write, let's say 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Let's do it one more time. Let's say the reference and then the verse. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. There you go. Memorize the verse right in the message this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Every year during Advent, our church adopts the tradition of the Advent wreath, lighting one candle each Sunday as we count down to Christmas. The continuous lighting of candles on the wreath throughout Advent signifies the increase of light pouring into the world as Christ's arrival draws near. Lighting the candles one by one over four weeks symbolizes the posture of anticipation we adopt in this season. The flame of each candle pushes back the darkness, and by Christmas Day, the fully illuminated wreath radiates a brightness to serve as a reminder that the light of the world came to defeat darkness forever and dwell with his people. The fourth candle of Advent symbolizes love, as he reminds us that God is love, and in his love, he sent us his only son. Let's light this candle now and remember that Christ is love. Amen. Let's uh, exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Tori and Avery, for leading us in song. Thank you, Tom, for that testimony of the faithfulness of God. Thank you, Pete, for challenging us to memorize 1 John 4, 19. (laughs) Hey, that's good. Scripture memory is, is important. And thank you, Marquetta, for, for lighting the Advent wreath. Um, I got an anonymous tip this morning that sometimes uh, sermon intros are like the first few paragraphs of a internet recipe, just kind of irrelevant. So thank you, Joey Freeland, for that. So I'm just going to dive right in. <laughs> <coughs> to be fair, I don't think he was saying my intros were. <laughs> uh, so we're just going to dive right in. Today is the final week of Advent, and this is the week that we have been waiting for. Um, and while we're talking about this, I want to invite you to turn your, t- take your copy of the scriptures and turn to 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We've been waiting for this. We have been anticipating the love of God. 
And not only have we been waiting these four weeks for the love of God in Advent, but also we really are, are waiting for the love of God our entire lives. Um, because Advent, which again means arrival, in this Advent season, we don't just celebrate Jesus' first arrival um, 2,000 years ago. We don't just celebrate Jesus' second arrival when he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead, but we actually celebrate his arrival to us right here and right now. And the love of God is not just a past event and it's not just a future event. But we remember today, specifically, we remember and we wait for God's love to meet us where we are right now. And whether you know it or not, whether we admit it or not, that's exactly, that's all that we're waiting for. That's all that we're longing for. All we are waiting for in life is the love of God. All we are longing for in life is the love of God. Every decision we make is longing for the love of God. And for those of us who have tasted it, it's been just that, a taste, a taste of the love of God. The love of God is, is so vast that we will ne- it's like an ocean that we will never be able to explore the depths of. It's like a journey that we'll see, see the end but never actually arrive and realize that the journey is the process of God's love itself. And the reason that love is so big is because the Bible says that God is love and God is infinite and God is a mystery. So therefore love is infinite and love is a mystery. And so what better way to wrap up Advent and celebrate Christmas than to remind ourselves that the love that God has for you and I, his dearly beloved sons and daughters, God loves you this morning. All that running that you're doing, all that anxiety that you're feeling, all that shame from those decisions, from those relationships, Jesus enters into your life and he gives you himself. He knocks at the door. And he waits. Do you hear the love of God? Do you see the love of God? Do you know the love of God? Our text today is quite simple, although the topic is not. The text and the verse is we love because he first loved us. And in talking about love, it's easy to get lost because, as I mentioned earlier, love is such a big topic. Love is God. God is love, and God is a mystery and infinite, and therefore love is a mystery and love is infinite. Now, this verse breaks down nicely into two categories, or two clauses. We love, first clause, because he first loved us, second clause. So that's exactly the pattern of the sermon that we're going to do today. The sermon has two parts. Part one, we love. Part two, because he first loved us. Now, I want us to look again. Look at verse 19. The first word of verse 19 is the word we now, notice real quick before we get into the meat of this text what it does not say. This verse does not say, I love, because God first loved me. It does not say that. It says, we love, because God first loved us. I wonder how many times I read the Bible. I know that I do this all the time. I wonder how many times we read the Bible, there we go, and the New Testament especially, and we take all the plurals, you, all, we, us, everybody, and we turn them into singulars, I, me, my, When in reality, there's no such thing as an isolated Christianity. God didn't call you as an individual. He called you as a people, the body of Christ. The New New Testament doesn't 
tell you as an individual how to live your little isolated life away from the rest of, of people at all, as if God is your possession. The Bible is very clear that you all are God's possession. And when it says you, it doesn't mean you as an individual. It's always plural, always you all, the body of Christ. And it encourages all of us to live in such radically selfless and sacrificial lives together by name in community, which honestly, if I'm being honest, it makes this verse kind of a, a little bit more annoying because it'd be nice if I could just take my God love, you know, and I could just go home and I could pour out a little God love to God and I could be like, oh, this is sweet. Like, I'll just put God in my pocket and I've got him as a little token and all this stuff. But it doesn't say that. It says we love, which means that we have to love in specifics because it's a lot easier to love in generalities than it is to love in specifics, Right? It's easier for me to say, well, I love like people in general. It's a lot harder for me to say, no, I love you specifically and all your annoyances and all your idiosyncratic features and everything, right? It's easy to say, oh, I love my parents in general. That's a general love. But to obey your parents when they tell you to do something that you may or may not want to do and to do it with a joyful attitude, that's a specific love. That's Christian love. Saying I love my spouse is a general love. Oh, yeah, I love my spouse. But serving them selflessly, keeping no record of wrong, championing their interests when it impedes on your own, that's a specific love. That's a messy love. Saying I love God is a general love, but waking up early to spend time with him, sitting in silence and solitude, listening to his voice, memorizing scripture because by it the powers of darkness have no hold on you, that's a specific love. Dostoevsky has this famous quote. It says, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. And what he means is this. It's easy to love in generalities. It's easy to say, well, God loves me and my little life over here, so I'm gonna live my isolated life, but I'm not actually gonna have names and faces and specifics of people I love. And that's just not the love of Jesus. That's not the love of Jesus. Jesus loves you specifically with your sins and with your pasts. And so when it says we love, can you imagine a people? What do you think the New Testament's all about? Can you imagine a people that says, I'm actually gonna put the needs of others above the needs of myself? I'm actually gonna say, no, I don't love you know, just people or the church or God in general. I'm actually gonna let you press into my life if you let me press into your life. And I'm gonna love you even if you don't love me in return. Because most times when we love people, they don't return the love back. And so we're like, well, I'm just done with love then. I'm not going to do that again. But that's just not what we see in Jesus. How many times have we turned away from Jesus and Jesus yet continually pursues us? He continually loves us. As I mentioned earlier, love is such a big word, such a big topic, that we could go a lot of ways when we talk about this phrase, we love, the first two words of this verse. We love because he first loved us. We could talk about Jesus' greatest commandment. You guys remember what Jesus' greatest commandment is? He, when, the, when he silenced the scribes, the Pharisees came up to him and they said, what's the greatest commandment? Because at the time they were like, there's like 612 in the Torah, there was another 500 in like the commentaries at the time, and there was like another like oral command and tradition that wasn't even written down. So there were like thousands of commands. So at some point or another, you have to be like, hey, which ones should I actually follow? So the Pharisees are like, let's trick Jesus. He says, they say, uh, what's the greatest command? And he says, love. Love is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with everything in you, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then the second, which isn't like second tier, it's like the other side of the same coin, love your neighbor as yourself, specifically, radically, sacrificially. We're not gonna talk about that today. 
We could talk about, when talking about love, we could talk about Paul's prayer at the end of Ephesians 3 where he says it actually requires power to know the love of God. And then when you have the power to know the love of God, it's actually a love of God that surpasses knowledge, so you can't know it. So you're trying to constantly understand the love of God, but you also can't know it in this life. We're not going to talk about that today. We could talk about the different types of love, where agape love is like this kind of umbrella term for love, but then you have in the New Testament, you have like this storge love, this eros love, this phileo love, all these Greek words for different kinds of love that C.S. Lewis made famous in his book, The Four Loves, but we're not gonna talk about today, that today. Instead, what we're gonna talk about, which those are all great topics, but I'm using those as future years, you know, because next year maybe we'll talk about one of those things. Hopefully I'm a pastor for a long time, we can just keep preaching on love. Anyway, instead we're gonna talk today about the stages of love, the stages of love. It's clear in general, that people thrive when they know where they're going, right? When you know where you come from, you know where you are, and you know where you're going. This is just like a general truth. Like in work, there are studies that show that job satisfaction is, uh, it, it, there's a correlation, that's the word, there's a correlation between job satisfaction and clarity in roles, right? You know where you've been, you know where you are, you know where you're going. With school, if you, if you know that you were in seventh grade, you know that seventh grade ended, you know that you're going into eighth grade. It's, it's, it's good for people to have a vision of where, of where they're going. Proverbs 29, 18 says, when there is no vision, the people perish. Just a general, wise, true thing. When there's no vision, the people perish. And so, here's the logic. If love is the goal of discipleship, right? The goal of discipleship, the end of discipleship, the telos of you following Jesus is to be formed into the image of Jesus, i.e. become a person of love, who loves God, who loves others, right? That's 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love, that's the greatest commandment, that's the golden rule that Jesus says, uh, uh, treat others how you wanna be treated, for that's the entire Bible. All, the letter of 1 John, which you should totally read this whole letter when you go home today or tomorrow, because it's all about that love is the thing. So, if love is the end, if it's the telos, if it's the goal of our discipleship, but love is such a big word, then how do we know if, what's our vision? How do we know if we're progressing in love? Is it just we're a little bit nicer than we were last year? Is it just like, oh, I, I bit my tongue a few more times this year than, or this week than last week? Like, how, what's, the, what's the measure of this? And pastors and theologians throughout the centuries have actually answer, uh, attempted to answer this. And they basically came up with, and for, like for the last couple thousand years, is basically they, what they call four stages of love, four stages of love. And uh, this was originally coined by a guy named St. Bernard of Clairvaux who lived in the 1000s, which is pretty fun to say. I think I always forget about like that era. It's like the, the New Testament church and then like the Reformation and then like now today and it's like, oh yeah, there were people alive then too. Anyway, I digress. Uh, there's this guy named St. Bernard, but, but he was really influential in another famous guy named Martin Luther and he was also really influential in another famous guy named John Calvin and he was also really influential on another famous guy, C.S. Lewis, and he was also really influential on another more modern saint, Tim Keller. So all the four people, at least, love, like they, they agree, they espouse this, they, they, they support this, and it's the four stages of love. Now, before we get into the four stages of love, I wanna be very clear. This is not like a level up type of a thing. The Christian life is never linear. Formation in general is always two steps forward, one step back, going the right way, getting stuck in a roundabout, going backwards, forgetting, oh, taking you U-turn, going. Like, like, like the, the Christian life is it ebbs and it flows and it's incremental and it's step by step and it's slow. 
So when you see these four stages, don't think, oh, I made it past stage one and I leveled up to stage two and then I made it and I leveled up. It's not like a video game, right? Like, like this is like, there are times in my life where I've seen, man, I was, uh, this is kind of where I was centered in for a while, but then I, I grew and I, I went there, but then I backtracked and I went here. So I want to be very clear. This is not like a, a game, right? This is primarily a diagnostic tool to say, all right, Lord, where am I in this right now, in this moment, in these stages of love. Because love is, not, formation is not linear. So all that to say, here are the four stages of love that we're gonna talk about. And again, this is under the first two words of this verse. We love. The first stage of love is this, love of self for self. Love of self for self. This is a pre-Christian love. This is an everybody love. Everybody has this. We're all, ma- every human being, Christian or non-Christian, is made in the image of God, which means that they have the capacity for love. But what is true before Christ is that it's love turned in on itself. It's this kind of consumeristic love. Uh, This is what 1 John calls the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. This is what Ephesians called being dead in your former life in which you once walked. This uh, This is the love that even if it seems like it's love for another, in one way or another, it's actually about yourself. Whether it's like, oh, you love somebody because now they owe you and like you're gonna cash in later or you love somebody because it actually makes you feel good. This is what Augustine called incurvatus, love turned in on itself. And our culture defines this kind of love all the time. Like it's a love of consumption. Meaning, if I love a meal or I love a girlfriend or boyfriend or I love even a a spouse or a parent or a child, what we mean is I want to consume that thing for my own pleasure and gratification. And this type of love is where we put our, our, our self is the center of it. Everything else centers around us, where even if love seemingly goes out, we want it to come back to us. So it's the love of self for self. It's a selfishness. It's taking care of itself. And then when it gets out of hand, it turns into lust and it turns into addiction and it turns into narcissism and it turns into all of these things. And if not kept in check, this will turn into complete self-centeredness complete self-centeredness, a love of self for self. That's the first type of love that every human being has, period. This is always how it starts. Then there's a second stage of love, and this is after Christ, and this is love of God for self. Love of God for self. This is when you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He has brought you out of his kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. And this is the awakening in Christ. But really what it is, it's I love God because of what he can give me. Now, this isn't bad. This isn't bad. It's bad to stay there, but it's not bad in general. It's the same type of a love that a child, a young child has for a parent, where they love their parent because they give them food and clothes and toys and all these things. And in fact, this type of love is actually everywhere in the Bible right? I love God because he's forgiven me of my sins. That's a good thing. I love God because he's given me a peace that surpasses all understanding. That's a good thing. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget any of his benefits, all of the good things that come from, from being united with God. He, he pardons all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. Psalm 63 says this, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, Marrow and fatness. This is, by the way, Psalm 63 is when David was in the wilderness writing. And I'm like, you're, you're satisfied with marrow and fatness in the wilderness? Whatever he's having, I'll have some of that because I want that kind of a love. So it's this love of, of God that is good, but it's, it's ultimately for what the Lord can, can bring you. Again, it's not bad, and it is, a lot of Christians get stuck there. A lot of people get stuck there. 
And you can really tell this when people pray and how they talk about the Lord because it's very my-centered, what God brings me, what God brings me, what God brings me. And that's a good starting place, but that's not stage three or stage four. So what is stage three? Stage three is the love of God for God, for God's sake. This is when you, you, you have experienced God as your helper and your provider, and the more you experience who God is, you can't get enough of him. Oh, yes, Lord, you are, this is all the hallelujah uh, psalms at the end of the Psalter. Lord, you are good. You are great. You are mighty. You are powerful. You are the creator. You are the sustainer. You are good. All of the praise that you hear in the scriptures is this love of God for God. God, I can't get enough of you. When you see and you realize his character, that he's slow to anger, you're like, God, you are slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When you realize his power, that out of nothing came everything through his word, through a word. When you realize his ways are higher than your ways, his thoughts are higher than your thoughts, his heart is for you, not against you, his love is infinite, his omnipotence and everything about it. When you just look at God and you say, God, I love you for who you are. That's a love of God for God. And this is when the love of neighbor even is actually just an expression of the love of God. It's not an obligatory love of, of a neighbor. It's just this love of, of your neighbor and of the other that just comes like, I know God loves you and I love God and therefore I, like, I just love you. Like this is, this is who I am because I love God for who God is. We become a part of God's plan and God's story in our lives. Now, when I was researching this a few years ago, I thought this was the end. I was like, well, this is, surely this is it. Like you go from love of self for self. That's a self-centered pre-Christian love. Then you go from love of God for self, and that's a good love, but you know, and some, you can ebb and flow between that and then between the love of God for God, but it's not. There's, there's a fourth stage of love. And actually, um, Tim Keller says in his book, um, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which in my opinion is his best book, and it's the shortest too. It's only like 50 or 60 pages, so no excuse for you not to read it. Uh, he, he, he talks about this type of a love ac- actually only being experienced a few times in this life but what will be true of us to the full in the resurrection. And this is the fourth stage of love, and it's this, united in love. This is when you can't tell where your love begins and God loves, God's love ends, or your love ends and God's love begins. This is, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. This is what the New Testament calls union with God. When Paul talks about, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, but I, the life I do now live I live in the power of him who does all things. Who, who's living? Is it Christ living or is it Paul living? That's what this is. You can't tell. It's when a, when a drop of water gets put into a vat of wine and you just can't tell the difference anymore. It's when air and light are like suffused in such a way that you don't know which is the air and which is the light. It's when like a piece of metal gets thrown into a furnace and the metal starts to be melted and forged and all of a sudden it's on fire and you're like, which is the metal, which is the fire? It's this, it's this, this beautiful union of you in God and God in you so that you are living and everything you do, you're not even experiencing the thoughts of yourself. You're actually just like, I'm, this is God's will and my will. They're, they're one and the same. Psalm 24, seven says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The only way you're able to do that is if your desires are his desires. If your, love's, if your love is his love, if your ways are his ways. And this is what is the, the unite, being united in love. It's becoming so comfortable in our own skin that we, to the glory and the delight of God, do things that we are made to do faithfully and the service and th- for the service and fame of Jesus. 
Irenaeus of Lyon says this, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. That's the glory of God. And that's what this is, united in love. It goes from, this degree of love is a stage in which nothing we desire, even for ourselves, is anything but God's will to be done. It involves a forgetfulness and ability to lose ourselves in God without losing our identity. It's this beautiful union between us and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So these are the four stages of love. Love of self for self, which is carnal. It's pre-Christ. It's just love turned in on itself. Then there's love of God for self. Lord, I thank you and I love you that you have given me all of these things. And then there's love of God for God. I just love you for who you are. I just, regardless of if you give me anything, I just love you for your heart. And then there's this final stage, which is just union. Union. Where you can't tell where your love begins and ends and where God's love begins and ends, where your desire begins. This is where Jesus was at the end, on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So the question we have then is, where are you in this? Remember, this is a diagnostic tool. This isn't a stage, a level up, or like a leveling up competition type of a thing. The question is for you to ask this week, is God, where am I right now? And Lord, give me the openness. Give me the openness to love as you love, to become united with you. So we love, how do we love? Do we love for ourselves, for our self's sake? Do we love God for our self's sake? Do we love God for God's sake? Or are we united in love? Those are the four stages of love, and those are the first two words of the verse, John, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Part one, over. Transition, part two. I literally wrote on my manuscript, transition, work on it. And here it is. So <laughs> I, have it, I didn't work on it. So um, we love because God first loved us. We love. There are four stages of love. What, is, what stage are you in right now? But the reason that we love, we don't just love on our own. In fact, we can't love on our own. I wish this verse was flipped. Because God loved us, we love him. But it's not, and so we're gonna follow what the verse says. So he first loved us. Now, we cannot love if we have not received the love of the Father. It is impossible. We cannot love others, if, or God, if we have not experienced the love of God in our lives. And sometimes, I would actually argue most times, it's harder to receive love than it is to give love. There's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of reasons. But sometimes it's harder to receive love from God and from others than it is to give love. Here are at least two reasons why it's harder to receive love than it is to give love. The first reason is that we believe lies. We have an enemy. For those of us who are in Christ, we have an enemy. And his name is the accuser. And that's exactly what he does. He accuses you. He wants to always accuse you of all of the wrong things that you've done. He's the deceiver. He wants to take God's words that sound good and right and say, yeah, 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 that's right, believe this lie. He wants to bring your past to right now. He wants to bring your sins before you, make you look at them and say, you know, God God can't put up with that, so you should just hide. 
He wants to busy you so much that you don't have the space or the time or the margin to sit with God and to hear his voice. And man, is he good at deceiving us. Yeah, sure, God loves you, but he doesn't really like you, right? I mean, like, do you remember what you said last week? You think God's gonna be okay with that? You know, in fact, I, I, don't, I think that he even doesn't like you so much that he didn't send his son out of love for you. He actually felt obligated to do it. And he actually kind of pities you. So. And his tactics, the enemy's tactics are always the same. <laughs> always the same. And it's questioning God's love for you. He'll say, are you sure he really loves you? You remember that decision? You think Jesus wants to be around that? You remember that past relationship? And he'll use scripture too, like he did in the garden. He'll say to us, didn't God say that your righteousness is like filthy rags? Didn't he tell you? Look, Isaiah 64, 6 says, your righteousness is like filthy rags. Didn't he tell you that? And you say, no. No, he didn't tell me that. Who did he tell that to? An old covenant Israel who didn't have an interior righteousness given to them by God himself. The reason that Isaiah said our righteousness is like filthy rags is because he was prophesying about a greater righteousness, about a new covenant, about one in which the righteousness of God would be made manifest and it would be ours. And that's what we're celebrating today, that Jesus gave us that new righteousness. So you say, get behind me, Satan. Don't take the verses out of context. That's not true. He'll use scripture like, like Jeremiah 17.9. It says, your heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, beyond cure. Who can know it? I may or may not have had to memorize that verse as a kid. Isn't your heart desperately wicked, beyond understanding? Who can know it? That's what the Bible says. And you say, no. No, it's not. Who is Jeremiah talking to? Not me. He was talking to an old covenant Israel. And in fact, later in the chapter, he talks about a new heart that God is going to give us in and through his spirit. So that's not, that's not true of me because when I say yes to Jesus and when I release all of my control and I say, Jesus, fill me with yourself and he sends his Holy Spirit, he literally does a heart transplant. He takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. So you get behind me, Satan, that's a lie. I know God loves me. One of the, heart, one of the reasons, guys, I've been seeing this in my life so much recently that I believe lies so easily and the second I realize that there are lies, the enemy changes his tactics and, he's, and I'm just like, I can't keep up. Literally last week, I was thinking, I was sitting with my spirit director and I was thinking, I was processing something and I was working through something and I was really, really uh, down. I was down and I was believing lies. I didn't know it at the time but I was believing lies and it, it almost like instinctively it came out of me and I was like, I just, I just feel like I just haven't changed at all. I haven't grown at all. And I just sat with it. And I exposed the lie. The lie is that the, lie, the enemy wants me to believe that I haven't changed at all. You're a pastor now, you haven't changed one bit. You're still struggling with that. You're still thinking about that. Yeah, you hypocrite. That's the accuser. And you know what I say? I say, Lord have mercy, Jesus have mercy, in and through Christ, I am more than conquer. I am, I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. He gave himself for me. One of the 
most challenging reasons to receive the love of God is because we believe these lies of ourselves. And what's the effectiveness of these lies? If you believe that before your feet hit the ground in the morning, you've already sinned a million times and it's just a miracle that God loves you, then we will become ineffective, weak, and fearful Christians. What do you think the enemy wants us to be? Ineffective, weak, and fearful. And what are we with New Testament resurrection power? We are not ineffective, we are more than conquerors. We actually have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead living in me. We are not weak, we are strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we are not filled with fear because the verse right before 1 John 4, 19, which is 1 John 4, 18, says there is no fear in love because why? Perfect love has cast out fear. Literally, an exorcism has been performed on our hearts to where fear is no longer. We now live and we sit and we love the love of God. So of course the enemy wants us to believe us that God doesn't love us, doesn't love us. Because it'll make us ineffective, weak, and fearful. But that's not who we are. And the antidote to that is speaking truth. Reading the word of God, praying to the Lord to, praying to, the Lord to give you strength, to give you mercy. It's, the antidote to that is being with others. We love each other because God first loved us. The same love that God showed us 2,000 years ago by sending his son, and then a little bit later by dying on the cross for our sin, that is love. And it takes resurrection power to receive the love of God. That's the first reason why it's hard sometimes to accept the love of God. Second reason, and this is where we're going fi- to finish up, is that we don't acknowledge our need. In order to receive love, you have to need love. And in our culture, we needy, needy and need is a, like a, it's a bad word. It's like a curse word. Like, oh, I can't be needy. Can't, can't be needy. I was actually listening to this marriage counselor one time on this podcast, and he was saying every time he does, starts a marriage counseling session, he looks at one spouse and he says, why do you need the other spouse? And then he goes on to explain that most times they're like, oh, I don't need, you know, I don't really need blah, 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 blah. And he's like, no you do need each other. We like to think that we can live on our own, live isolated lives without needs of others and without needs of God, but that's a lie. We need each other a lot more than we don't, and we need God way more than we don't. And so when we don't think that we're, being, we're worthy of being loved, then we actually say, I, I'm actually gonna take, uh, I'm gonna take matters into my own hands because in order to receive love, I have to do what? I have to let go. I have to humble myself. I have to say, I need help. I don't just need help from God. I actually need help from you. I need help from you to encourage me, to strengthen me, to pray for me. And guess what? I am going to help you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to pray for you. And the only way that we are able to love one another is if we know the other person. And the only way to be known is to be vulnerable. To be vulnerable. I have to open myself up. Because if oftentimes people who are feeling the most lonely are the most closed off. Because those who are experienced loneliness often, not always, often don't open up to their own needs both to God and to others. And so the antidote is just open, to let go, to humble ourselves. Love is Jesus looking at you, seeing who you are made to be in the image of God. 
looking at your purpose and your potential and the very ins and outs of your heart, knowing what you're capable of, knowing your past but calling you into a better future and waiting and wanting to free you from the chains of slavery, of sin and death. He's waiting for you. We're waiting for him, he's waiting for us. He gently knocks at the door of your heart and he waits. He's not gonna break down the door. He's gonna sit there. And the one thing that will allow us to fully experience the love of God, to go from love of self for self, to go from love of God for self, and to, to, to journey along the four stages of love, the one thing that's required is for us to humble ourselves, to repent, to do what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, gave up his rights and his royalty to serve, became the most vulnerable in a marginalized minority people group under foreign occupation. That's what Jesus did for you. And he gave his life for you. Not out of obligation. Silence that lie. But out of love. And so where are you today? What kind of love do you have? In the four stages of love, where is your love? And then what do we need to do right now to release, to humble ourselves, and to receive the love of God? Those are the two, the, the two questions I wanna leave you with today in this Christmas season. And I know this isn't really like a Jesus in the manger type of a sermon, but we're talking about the love of God. And, and this, is, this is, actually this is what Paul says in Ephesians three seventeen because he talks about the love of God too. He says, this is Paul's prayer for us, for, for the Ephesians, the church of Ephesus. I pray that you all, you all, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to understand, to comprehend with all of the saints what is the length, what is the width, what is the height, what is the depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. And then this is what happens. This is what happens. This is the promise you have when you are able to comprehend the love of God so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you wanna be filled with all the fullness of God? Do you wanna be united in love? Make this your prayer. Humble yourselves and receive the love that God has for you. Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy of your love in our sin, but also, Lord, we know that you make us your own. You make us exactly who we are made to be in your love. So, Lord, I do pray right now, I pray with Paul, God, that we would be rooted, we would be firmly established in love. That right, right here, right now, everybody at AGC, Lord, I pray that we would be firmly established in love. Not a general love that's vague and uh, unspecific, but one, Lord, that has faces and has names and has actions to it. I pray that we would be rooted and firmly established in love. And God, I also pray that we would be able to comprehend in our mind's eye, in our heart, in our body, in our emotions, in everything, we would be able to comprehend the height, the depth, the length and the width of your love. God, I pray we would never get tired of it. I pray we would never grow weary of it. I ask, Lord, that you would just, you would show us the depths of it, just, just a glimpse so that we realize that the rest of our lives we will be living in your love. And I ask, God, that we would be able to 
know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge and understanding. And ultimately, God, that you would fill us right here in this room, at this church, in this moment, in this Christmas season, you would fill us with all of your fullness. We pray all this in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.